please take your Bibles this morning and open them to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3. The Christmas season is a special time of year. I know we say that often, but it's quite unlike any other. It has its own unique decorations, right? It has its own special music. We've just been singing this morning. We only sing it this time of year. It has its special food and, of course, our special traditions. For most of us, Christmas is a familiar time, a nostalgic time, and a comfortable time. And for that reason, it can also be one of the most dangerous times of the year. It's a time when we can get caught up in the season. It's a time when we can go through the motions of the season. It's a time when we can get lost in what is familiar and nostalgic and comfortable without thinking purposefully and intentionally about what it is we are celebrating, why Christmas is important, and what significance it has for what we believe and for how we live. So this morning we're going to turn to a very familiar passage of Scripture in an effort to try to answer those questions about Christmas. These questions get to the heart of what Christmas is and why we celebrate it. And again, for most of us, just looking around, most of us, this is familiar territory, right? What I'm going to tell you this morning is not anything you don't already know. And yet, we need to hear these things again. We know what Christmas is about. We know why we celebrate it. We know its significance for our faith and for our lives. And yet, this occasion, the celebration of another Christmas, gives us the opportunity to remind ourselves of the very truths that encourage us and give perspective for our faith, for our lives, and for our future. Let's look at our passage this morning, John chapter 3, reading from verses 16 to 21. John 3. 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So there are three questions that I want to ask this morning about Christmas that I think are answered in our passage. We'll just use the three sort of key basics, okay? What? Why and so what? What, why, and so what? What happened at Christmas? Why did Christmas happen? And then so what? What meaning does this have for us, for our doctrine, for what we believe, and for our lives, how we live? So first, the first question is the what question. What happened at Christmas? John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So what happened at Christmas? God gave his only son, Jesus Christ. And the verse opens with a clear statement of what God did. 
at Christmas, God gave His Son, His only begotten Son, to the world. Now, I want to draw your attention to the word gave there. It's a very simple word, right? It's a very a word that we all know what it means. But this word is unique because it indicates purpose. It indicates deliberation. It indicates intentionality. The arrival of Jesus into our world did not happen randomly, right? It wasn't happenstance that one day this child was just showed up on planet Earth, was born of a woman and just showed up. God and God alone determined from the very beginning to give his son to the world. It was his decision made by his own determination on his own initiative. Jesus is then God's gift to us, given of his pure, sovereign, and undeserved grace. Now, we spend a good deal of time during the holiday season planning, buying, making, and wrapping gifts to give away. And we think so much of the gifts that we are going to give, and we think of so much of the people that we're going to give them to, that we intend those gifts to be special gifts, right? Unless you have a clearly designated white elephant gift, right? Where you're supposed to go to Goodwill and spend like a few bucks on something that's supposed to be funny. You give something that you want the person to have. You think something special about them. You have thought about this gift, and you want it to be a very special gift that you give. Well, we're not obliged to give these gifts, but we give gifts because we desire to give them. The gifts that we give are gifts motivated by love. And so we need to appreciate the gift that God has given to us in His Son. The Son of God, as we've sung this morning, took on human flesh. He was conceived in an unmarried, impoverished maiden, living in the backwater of Israel. He was born in humility with a manger for a bed and swaddling cloths for a garment. His birth was announced to lowly shepherds tending their sheep on the hills outside of Bethlehem. This beautiful, humble baby was God's gift to mankind. And He gave this gift to us willingly. I think sometimes we pass over that word gave as a simple word. It's a very simple action. But meditate for a moment on what John means when he says that God gave. God did not have to give. But he chose to give this gift of grace when we were so undeserving. So what did happen at Christmas? God gave his only son. Well, John continues on in verse 16 to explain why God gave his son. Why? Why did Christmas happen? We see the answer in verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave His Son, Jesus Christ, at Christmas to die on a cross. God gave His Son, Jesus Christ, at Christmas to die on a cross. And think about that. Jesus was born into this world. He lived in this world in order to die. We think about all that Jesus did during His earthly ministry. We read the Gospel narratives about his, what He did. He he healed, right? He taught the people. He was an example of the model life that we all should live before God. He offered hope. But all of his words and all of his works were in the service of pointing people to his death and its significance for them. Jesus was born on Christmas Day in order to die. And Peter indicates as much in his sermon about Jesus at Pentecost in Acts 2, 22 and 23, when he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst that you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says Jesus came to die. It was God's definite plan and foreknowledge to send his son to the world to die. Jesus acknowledges himself. His life's purpose was to die. Mark 10.45 When he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how was he going to serve? But to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to lay down his life in death. And think about the irony of that, right? That's quite ironic. When we think about the purpose of our lives, we don't think about death. Now, we know that we're going to die, right? We know that someday we will die. Death is a certainty for all people. From the moment that we are conceived, we begin to die. We are on a collision course with death. But we don't conceive of our life's purpose as death, do we? When we all come to that moment of self-discovery, right? When we all ask that question, what am I doing here? What is the purpose and meaning of my life? What am I destined to do? Our answer is not die. Death is not the purpose of our lives. It is the sure outcome of our lives, but it is not the purpose of our lives. We all live as if we have some purpose and meaning in this world. Part, part, part of the, the thing that we do, especially in our teenage years and early, early 20s, is try to discover what is the purpose and meaning for my life. We're trying to discover why we're here. What am I doing here? What do, what do I want to accomplish I think we all, to some degree, want to make some kind of impact on the world, right? We want to make a difference in in the world or in people's lives. We want to help people. We want to be great in whatever it is we set our hands to do. We want to be well-known and remembered. We know that we're consumed with family and friends and career and home and hobbies and entertainment and community. And so we tend to think of our meaning and purpose as in those realms. We look for our meaning and purpose in those things. But none of us is born with a mission to die. That is exactly the purpose that God destined for Jesus. His mission in living and existing was to die. He ate, breathed, slept, even traveled with the perpetual knowledge that his life's mission was to go to the cross. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, after about a year, maybe a year and a half, in which Jesus was ministering and engaged with his disciples, he finally revealed to them. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus' sole focus for his life and ministry was to go to the cross. And his focus was laser-like. He would not be deterred. Do you remember when Jesus mentioned this to the disciples? I'm going to be killed. What was their response? What was Peter's response? Matthew 16 says that Jesus, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. In other words, you're a crazy man. You're telling us your purpose is to die? No. You call yourself the Christ? We just told you we believe that you're the Christ. That's not what your purpose is. That's not what you're going to do. And what was Jesus' response? He said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
And so from that moment on, every time Jesus moves closer and closer to Jerusalem, even as he moves closer and closer to Passion Week, we see that Jesus is orchestrating all the circumstances that are surrounding his death like he is the director of a grand pageant. He knows this is his mission. He's going to orchestrate everything for that purpose. And that's an unusual purpose for someone to have in their life. And so that would be an unusual purpose for the Son of God who left heaven to come to earth. We might think that God would have something far more noble and far more productive for Jesus than death. So why in the world would God send his son to die? We see from John 3.16 that God gave his only son, Jesus Christ, at Christmas to die on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus died for a specific purpose. It was not just for the purpose of death. His death had a purpose. He would become the sacrifice for our sins. And we can understand why Jesus came to die for our sins by acknowledging that we are sinful. Every human being is sinful. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, chapter 10, or chapter 3, Romans 3, 10, verses... Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And further in that chapter, Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So our sinfulness has brought us into a cosmic conflict with God. And it is our sin that keeps us from the good things that God offers us through a relationship with Him. But, by God's grace, He deals with our sin problem through the death of of Jesus, because Jesus was the sacrifice to atone for our sins. You see, our sins deserve the wrath of a holy God. God is just. God is holy. God is righteous, and he cannot have fellowship with unrighteous, unholy, sinful people. In fact, what we deserve for our sins is wrath, God's wrath. His wrath must be satisfied. Our sin problem must be dealt with. He cannot overlook our sin because He is a holy God. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He can't dismiss it out of hand. He must judge sinners for their sin. And apart from a sacrifice made on behalf of a sinner, then we would all be hopeless. We would all have to bear God's wrath. But as a sacrifice for our sins, Jesus satisfies God's wrath. He is, to use the theological word, our propitiation. Romans 3, 23-25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And in Hebrews 2.17 we see, Therefore He has been made, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of His people. 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This propitiation, what is it? It's a big theological word. It just simply means that it's a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. In ancient Greek and Roman times, whenever the, 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 the Greeks or the Romans would make sacrifices to their gods, they were propitiations. They were meant to try to avert the wrath of that god against them. If they were undergoing some kind of bad luck or something, Right? They would sacrifice a bird or they would 
pour out a, 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 a pitcher of wine, something to try to, uh, to ameliorate the God from, from doing evil things against them. The propitiation for us in the, in the Christian sense is that the satisfaction of God's wrath, God's holy and righteous wrath that we deserve for our sins, that wrath is assuaged, it is put away. God's wrath is dealt with. In other words, on the cross when Jesus died for our sins, He was redirecting the wrath that we should have deserved and He received it Himself. He bore the brunt of the wrath that we deserve. So Jesus served as our propitiation by taking on our sins. He took them upon His own body. He bore the wrath that they deserved. Instead of suffering God's wrath justly for our sins, Jesus suffered in our place. He died as a sacrifice so that we might live. So God sent Jesus to die for a specific purpose. He died to make atonement for our sins. And in his death, then, Jesus forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. God gave his only son, Jesus Christ, at at Christmas to die on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. For what purpose? To bring us into a new relationship with God. See, Jesus' death makes a new relationship with God possible. Our sin makes that relationship impossible because a holy God cannot fellowship with unholy people. But Christ's death removes the stain of sin and reestablishes the relationship that God intended to have with humanity. So Jesus reconciles or he makes peace with us, between us and God, so that we might abide in an eternal relationship with God. Paul writes of this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 16. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, Paul writes there that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So by his sacrificial death, Jesus reconciled us to God so that we could have fellowship with him. And not only do we live at peace with God, but this new and restored relationship with God is that of a father and child. You know that we can call this God, this holy God, this righteous God, Father. We call him Father. How does he view these once sinful people as his very own children because of his atoning death on the cross God is now our father and we are his precious and beloved children so God gave his only son Jesus Christ at Christmas to die on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins to bring us into a new relationship with God that's the reason for Christmas But if we press a little deeper, we can see some important and relevant implications of Christmas for our understanding of the gospel. So let's think about this last question. So what? 
so what? If Christmas is about God giving His only begotten Son to die for us, then what does this say about us? What does this say about God? And what does this say about God's plans for us? First, we see that Christmas reveals that we are sinful people. We are sinful people. If you look at verse 18 of our passage, John writes, or perhaps this is Jesus speaking. It's hard to know. The earlier chapter, part of the chapter, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. It's hard to know exactly where he stops speaking and where John kind of picks up. So this could all be Jesus' words or it could be John's commentary on what Jesus has just said. But he says, whoever believes in him, that is the Son, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Christmas reveals that we're sinful people. It shines a light upon us. It puts a mirror in front of us to help us see what we really are. Why did Jesus have to die to forgive sins? Think of it another way. Isn't there anything else that Jesus could do for us to forgive us of our sins? Is there anything that God could do to forgive us of our sins other than sending his son into the world to die as a sacrifice for our sins? And the answer is no. That was the only way. That was the only means of salvation. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He's praying that night before his arrest. What is he praying? He says, Father, my Father. This is Matthew 26, 39. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We have to think that because of the special relationship between the Father and the Son, that if there was any other way that God would have chosen to go that route. That if there had been any other way, and God didn't go that route, that God would be somehow unjust or unloving because Jesus would have suffered a horrendous and torturous and shameful death that was not necessary because there was another way. But man's sin was so offensive to God that the only remedy was Christ's sacrifice. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. What does that say about us? But the only remedy that God could provide for us, for sinful people to be forgiven of their sins, is for him to send his only begotten son to take on human flesh and then to go to the cross and die for us. How awful must sin be if the only way to deal with it was the death of God's precious, beloved son. Jesus, excuse me, John reports that man's corruption is so thorough and so vile that he loves living in his sin. Did you notice verses 19 and 20? Those are really stark to me. They stand out. It says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus will say elsewhere in the Gospel of John that he is the light of the world. He was sent by God into the world to cast a light on darkness, on our darkness to reveal the true spiritual condition of our hearts, to show that we were sinful and rebellious. But the hearts of sinful men were so corrupt that they refused to live in the light of God's glory and truth. 
they instead return to their spiritual darkness. I, I know I've said this before, so forgive me to use the analogy again. But you think about the cockroach, right? You get up in the middle of the night, you need to go get a glass of water or something, you flip on the light switch, and there's the roach, right? And before you freak out, it freaks out first, because what is it going to do? It runs right back to the darkness. It does not like the light. It prefers to live in darkness. It doesn't want to be seen. And so it runs for the darkness. You shine the light on it, it doesn't want to be there. Friends, we are spiritual cockroaches. What this verse is telling us that when Jesus came into the world, the Christmas message that he shined a light upon the darkness of the world. And what sinful men prefer to do was to live in the darkness, was to glorify their sin, to continue to, to, to live out their rebellion against God. And it's only by God's grace that some were captured by the light and said, I won't run back to the darkness. I will live in the light. I will live in the glory and the grace of our God. But what John is saying here in verses 19 and 20 is that our works, our, our sinful works are so evil that people, so, people living in darkness so thoroughly love their evil works that they refuse to abandon them. Even more than that, they hate the light because the light exposes their works for what they really are. People don't want to be told what they're doing is wrong. They don't want to hear that God says what you do is evil. They would prefer to run and to live in the darkness than to hear the truth and live in the light. That is some serious corruption. When Jesus came into the world, he brought the light of the truth. And that blazing, bright light exposed human sinfulness. But men so loved and enjoyed their sin, they fled back into the darkness to pursue it all the more eagerly. And it is only by God's grace that the light of Jesus arrested some of us so that we would come to hate the darkness and love the light and dwell in the light. Man's sinfulness then brings him into the crosshairs of God's justice. We see that in verse 19. Their sinfulness is an indictment against them. This is the judgment, John writes. The light has come and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. You see, God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, to bring condemnation, right? He says that in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. God didn't send Jesus to condemn. But condemnation already rests upon sinful people. If you go into verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. God didn't send Jesus to bring condemnation. Men are already condemned because of the state of their hearts and the wickedness of their actions. And that condemnation brings eternal punishment. Back in verse 16, what does John say about those who do believe in him? That they will not perish? What's the implication of that? That those who do not believe in him will what? They will perish. And that perishing isn't just a simple death in this life or a finite time of suffering after life but this perishing is an eternal perishing what the bible calls the second death where god's wrath burns against the sinner for eternity so apart from the merciful sacrifice of jesus we would all john 3:16 says perish we would all perish so the christmas event then exposes our need for a savior 
We need to be saved from our sins. We need to be saved from this condemnation that we so deserve because of our sins. And so when Adam read the, the, the Christmas story from Matthew at the very beginning, one of the reasons I love that passage so much is because it tells us, again, the purpose and mission of Jesus. When the angel discloses to Joseph about Mary's pregnancy, he tells Joseph what to name the child, right? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why the name Jesus? For he shall save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh, Jehovah, saves. Yahweh saves. Name this child Yahweh saves, because through this one, Yahweh will save you from your sins. That's the message of the cross. If we look to the cross, we have to see, before we can see the love of God, we have to see just how awful we are, how sinful we are, and how offensive our sin is to God. But that brings us into the second implication which is that Christmas not only reveals how sinful we are, it also reveals God's love for us. The cross is the greatest display of God's love. Yes, it displays our human depravity. The only way that we could be saved was by the death of God's beloved Son. But at the same time, the cross reveals God's supreme love for us because God willingly gave His only Son to save us. For God so loved us. The world. What was the reason why he sent his son into the world? Because he loved us. Where does, the Bible, where, where does God's love come from? Where does God get all this love? Well, it is, it is internal to God as one of his attributes. The Bible reminds us that God is love. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. He is the personification of love. He is the living embodiment of love. The outward displays of love come from God Himself because He is love. Why does God love us? Because He is love. That love must come out. It must be expressed. Or else God is not God. And all that God does then is an act of His love. In fact, if you notice that the word so in verse 16 intensifies God's love for us. So His love is not partial or measured. It is full and complete and perfect. We know that God loved the world because He gave His only begotten Son. Again, God gave. So, that's an action word, right? Love is action-oriented. We talk so much in our culture today about love being a, a feeling, right? People talk about love as if it's just a, this feeling that comes and goes. But no, love is an action. Love is action-oriented. Love is displayed. It expresses itself outwardly to others. They are objects of His love. Romans 5 Verse 8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the Christmas event reveals God's love for sinful people. God saw us in our hopeless and helpless condition. And He determined out of the depth of His love to do something eternally good for us. So God's motivation for Christmas was love. The third and final implication that we can see then in this passage is that Christmas reveals the promise of eternal life. Christmas reveals the promise of eternal life. If you look at verses 16 and 17, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In verse 21, But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So God's salvation saves us of the eternal condemnation that we really deserve because of our own sinfulness. God's salvation forgives us of our sins. It reconciles us to him. But God's salvation through the cross of Jesus also brings us eternal life. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And what does Jesus mean by eternal life? Eternal life certainly means this idea that we will never die again, that we will live eternally with God. But in John's gospel, eternal life takes on more than just simply the the quantity of life, the unending number of days that we will live. It takes on the idea of a quality of life. Eternal life is what life really is when one abides with God. So John oftentimes intersperses or intermixes this idea of eternal life with abundant life. Eternal life is the life that truly is life. Jesus spoke of this in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So eternal life is life that exists in Jesus himself. It is the life he offers to us, but it is the life that exists in him. And when a person abides in him, they possess, they take on that life. In John 14:6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life. What's eternal life? It's not you're going to get to live forever. But this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is abiding with Jesus. It is relationship with Jesus. Eternal life is bound up in Christ. It is a life lived in union with Him. It's a life in which His character becomes our character. It's a life of hope and peace and joy. Those very themes we've been discussing all month long during this Advent season. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God sent His Son into the world to make us alive. Because of the life that we have through His death and resurrection, we really and truly live. Charles Spurgeon once noted the significance of Christmas. He said Christ's humble birth was but the prelude to a life still more humble and a death even more abased. God gave his son, his only son, to die. So the greatest gift that we could ever receive is not one found under a tree, but it is the one who hung on a tree. God gave His Son to us as a gift of His infinite, marvelous, matchless, amazing grace. And this gift is free to us because the price was paid by Christ Himself when He humbly and voluntarily laid down His life in an act of love for us. If you've come into this church this morning and you are not a Christian, let me plead with you not to let this Christmas pass without receiving this extraordinary gift. See the babe in the manger and the man on the cross as a sign of God's love for you. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ 
And this gift of God's grace will be yours, not just for today, but for all eternity. And if you are a Christian, Christmas offers us once again the opportunity to remember and celebrate the gospel. What does God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ look like to you? How does it change your outlook on life? How does it give you hope and peace? Do you have joy? How does the gospel affect the way that you live? Friends, God's grace and love is transformative. May celebrating Christmas and remembering God's gift to you inspire you to lay down your life as a living sacrifice to Him. And in fact, this is the only gift that we can offer back to Him. A life laid down as a living sacrifice. A life of worship. A life of obedience. And a life of service. He is indeed worthy to receive such a gift. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And to that we all say, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for this wonderful season that we celebrate. It's only wonderful because Your gift was wonderful to us. We thank You for sending Your Son, for giving Your Son out of the depths of Your love, for the depths of our need, so that we could benefit and relate to you forever and ever, enjoying abiding relationship with you. Lord, we thank you. And I pray that you would not let these words fall on deaf ears, Father. But I pray that those who might be here this morning that aren't Christians would come to know the significance of that. I pray, Lord, that as the light has been shown, that you would arrest them. They would come to you in repentance and faith. They would receive this gift of Christ. And for us who are your people, Father, we pray that you would just help us to remember this great gift that's been given to us and to remember, Lord, that this treasure is ours for eternity, that we're not to despise it or to cast it aside, but we are to give our lives back in return as your people to do as you wish for all eternity. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this incredible gift of your love to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.